Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. Okay, do you have any questions? Anything you'd like to... Yes. <laughs> okay, so the question was, does it weaken your practice if you um, have different phrases for yourself, different phrases for various others, and uh, some feeling that she doesn't actually want to have to choose one set? Well, I mean, the best answer really comes from your own experience. You know, um, it would weaken my practice, my guess is, you know, because um, it's just the way my mind is that I would then start thinking, what's the perfect phrase for you, you know? And then it's the same way when I, I describe myself beginning mental noting, which is a particular mindfulness technique where uh, along with feeling the in and out breath, you would silently be repeating in, out, in, out. And then you uh, place a label on your predominant experience if the word comes easily. So it's like in, out, joy, sorrow, hearing, thinking, whatever. So I used to find myself sitting there thinking, is that pain or is that discomfort? Let's see, is there something in between pain and discomfort? Like, what would that be? So my sittings resembled somebody sitting down and reading a thesaurus, and it was a complete waste of time, right? So I think I, as I said, you know, I'm the kind of person, I'm very supported by structure and simplicity. I could easily spend a lot of time, you know, thinking, well, you know, that doesn't quite fit you, like... Happy, content, satisfied? No, you're too satisfied. Like, you know, and that I would lose the whole concentration side of things. That's not to say you are losing that. You know, so uh, the best thing to do is kind of take a look and see. I mean, there's something enlivening about what you're describing, also. So it's it's good in that it, you know, I think picks up energy. Um, but you don't want so much energy that it's way out of whack with the degree of concentration. So just take a look. Okay, so the comment was that metta practice feels like it's a lot of doing compared to other practices. Well, it, it is in many ways. Um, you don't want to overdo. You know, there's a way in which it's, um, it doesn't have to feel artificial or forced or uh, compelled, you know. Um, it's why we talk about, I mean, that's another reason to have the same phrases, you know, or similar phrases, because you're not always trying to construct, and you, you definitely don't want to be trying to manufacture a feeling. That's like way too much doing, you know. Um, it's doing in that it's more active, it's verbal, uh, but I, I do think things in a way, quiet down after a while. It just feels more natural to be exuding. You may not always be using the words. You know, it may just be this kind of sensibility of 
of connection, or it may be almost like dwelling with the recipient, a sense of the recipient. And the words exist as a bottom line. So that's kind of a, a modulation that happens as uh, time goes on and you feel more um, the subtleties of it. And to some extent, the doing part is not bad. You know, uh, this is what I said in, in my groups. Um, it's very common in meditation practice. Remember that basic balance of um, the calm, concentration, tranquil development on one side, and then the energy and the interest and the aliveness on the other side. So it's very common in meditation practice uh, for, uh, for those two sides not to be evolving in perfect harmony. Um, and if the calm, tranquil, concentration side is deepening at a kind of faster rate than the energy, clarity side, then we fall into what classically is known as sinking mind, and which I call the ooze. We just kind of ooze along. Like I had a great ooze experience here. Um, and that is another reason why in mindfulness practice, mental noting, which also feels like doing, is sometimes used. So I was up here once uh, leading the sitting after breakfast, which is the instruction sitting, and I sat down and closed my eyes uh, and felt a few breaths, and I went right into the ooze. And like something like 20 minutes later, I had the thought, Maybe I should actually be noting, you know, not just feeling the breath, but saying in, out. So I started to do that, and it's like the clouds cleared, and I realized I'd been sitting up here in front of like 100 people for 20 minutes, and they've been waiting for some instruction. <laughs> so I didn't say anything, and then at the end of the sitting, I rang the bell, and I said, this is what just happened. I gave a big plug for mental noting. Okay, but what people often discover uh, is that you can, whether the noting helps, but it's not that hard to be with the breath and just kind of drift into that kind of dreamy, sleepy state. And it's much harder in loving kindness practice because of the verbs, the words, um, the phrases, the active part of it. Uh, so what happens when you're doing loving-kindness practice and you fall into that particular imbalance is that the words tend to get garbled. So as I said with my groups, it's like sometimes in Burma, I would find myself sitting there repeating, may you be filled with suffering, maybe I'd go, <laughs> no, may you be free of suffering, you know, and so... Uh, it, it is more active, and it demands that we find kind of right effort with it, so it's not too, too much, but there, there are very positive parts of that, you know, that, that really help with clarity and, and wakefulness in, in different ways. Yes? Okay, so the question was about, uh, when I talked about the tone of sympathetic joining the tone of compassion, and um, is the effort to like kind of recognize what someone's going through simply or to feel what they're going through and have kind of uh, 
exercise in empathy. And I would say for now, probably just recognize and see what's elicited. I'm going to talk a lot about empathy tomorrow night. Um, onwards. <laughs> Someone else back there? Yeah? Okay, so the question was about uh, aversion as a cause of that kind of sleepy, drifty, oozy state uh, as one possibility and how you know. Uh, and the comment about kind of moving there when we moved to a successful friend and having that tone of sympathetic joy, which is interesting. Many people say, you know, we'll talk about um, much more about compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity as the retreat goes on. Many teachers have said that uh, a lot of people find sympathetic joy the most difficult uh, because we do challenge a lot of assumptions in the uh, uncovering or the, the deepening of sympathetic joy, assumptions about happiness. You know, like happiness is a limited commodity in this world, and the more someone else has, the less there is for me. Assumptions about aloneness, assumptions about permanence. Like you have everything, and you will forever. And I, I have nothing, and I will forever. Well, there are actually two big problems in that last one. <laughs> It's very unlikely that we have nothing. It's also very unlikely that they have everything. And then the forever part is its own problem. And, you know, many assumptions that we just tend to be holding that really uh, do get challenged in the development of sympathetic joy. So it's not impossible by any means, but it can be difficult. So that's not a surprise. Um, there are many reasons why either sleepiness or... Uh, that kind of semi-sleepiness, you know, leading to full collapse, uh, might arise. And one is exactly what you said. Sometimes we are entering uncomfortable territory. And it's a habit. You know, it's like we want to cocoon. It's like numbness. You know, we want to cocoon ourselves from some feeling, and, and that could well be the case. Sometimes it is that energetic imbalance. And and it's not a bad state by any means. It's just that we're, uh, you know, deepening calm much more than we're strengthening energy. And so we need to redress that balance. And um, sometimes it's that most of what's, and this will figure, I think, much more largely even tomorrow uh, as we offer loving kindness to a neutral person, you know, in mindfulness practice, sometimes our experience is fairly neutral. It's not big highs, not big lows for phase, you know, and, and things are just kind of ordinary or routine or repetitive, and, and that's replicated in some way as we begin the offering of loving kindness to a neutral person. So a neutral person is someone we don't strongly like or dislike, so there's not a big charge around them. The charge actually keeps us awake, you know, and then we come to the neutral person. It's just like, oh, God. You know, there's no hook. And so uh, it's very common to just kind of go to sleep, you know, just to feel. And we do. I mean, in both life and meditation and both kinds of meditation, we see we often rely on intensity in order to feel alive. And that when things are kind of muted or quiet or neutral, that, that's when we tend to conk out, you know. And so in general, I think we're not awfully trained to subtlety, to be really connected in a time of subtlety. And 
but we do train that. You know, that's part of what happens in the unfolding of the practice. And so there are lots of reasons why that state may arise. And sometimes it's obvious to us if we take a look, and sometimes it's not. So we just deal with it, you know, in, in the moment. Um, sometimes there's an energy imbalance, and sometimes uh, we start with kind of holding it in a more, in a kinder way. And then you might decide, I need to stand up, I need to open my eyes, I need to pull my earlobes, I need to, you know, take a nap, whatever it is. Uh, Why has family not come up? Um, Sometimes it comes up, and people are, you know, often including their family, either benefactors or friends or whatever, you know, but um, often that uh, specific experience is done when, as <coughs> I think it was Leela said, we we at some point move to the extension of loving kindness to groups. Uh, so when we said, you know, maybe you have many friends, but you're only focusing on offering loving kindness to one for or one or two for the sake of the concentration, but then we're going to have a party, right? And we're going to invite everyone else in. The way that groups are done classically, is you usually make an effort to include like pairs of opposites or complementary sets. Um, So in that case, it would be offering loving kindness to all those beings in your family, then all those beings who are not in your family. So that taken together, it makes the whole of life. And this is a a very playful part of the practice. As I, I said to one group, I have a friend who has uh, very bad insomnia, and she said as she lies in bed not sleeping, she does loving-kindness practice. I actually think you know those hours are a really good time to do it. It's like somehow the world is it's attenuated, you know, and you feel more expansive. But anyway, she does loving-kindness to all those beings who are awake, which is herself, but also it's beings at the other end of the world, you know, starting their work day or, you know, water buffalo in India or whatever. And then she does loving kindness to all beings who are asleep, which does not include herself, <laughs> but presumably includes all of her neighbors, you know. And so that's the, the kind of um, uh, experience, you know, of groupings that, that's kind of classically done. Uh, So the first part of the comment was uh, suspecting that all of these subcategories and so on are really all reflections of parts of ourselves and is the um, category that we have difficulty with reflective of a difficulty we have with that part of ourselves. And and then saying she has some problem with the benefactor, um, perhaps because her expectations are too high. yeah, maybe your expectations are too high. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like the textual comment, um, who do you smile when you think of them? And it may not be someone you know really well. It may be somebody who's helped you directly. Um, it may not be. You know, people will often choose, like, an inspiring figure or... Uh, it's just some sense of like our feeling about being in this world is lifted up because of this being. And people do choose their pets. 
um, or a child, or you know, it, it's. Uh, but it doesn't have to be more than that. Um, and I, and if you know, if it's going to be a struggle, it's it's worth skipping, you know, and just like, yeah, just go to a good friend. But uh, in terms of the first part, I do think there's an element of truth in that. I once said to somebody. Because the categories, I mean, it's just a way of unfolding the practice. It's just like a means. Um, and it's also a little like poetry, you know. It's like different flavors with different categories. And so we're just kind of getting into the world of, of loving kindness from different angles. And um, I once said to somebody, I had a vision of doing a loving, leading a loving kindness retreat where we just chose one person as the the object or the recipient and the parts of them we kind of admired or were grateful for, they were like our benefactor. Parts of them we felt at ease with, they were like our friend. The parts of them we didn't really know well, they were like our neutral person. The parts of them we didn't like, they were like our difficult person. And the person I was talking to said, well, you know, you can just choose yourself. One can just choose oneself because we play all of those roles with ourselves too. So in a way, the categories, um, they're really artificial because relationships are complicated and someone can be our benefactor and our difficult person. And, um, but in another way, uh, it is in some way, it's how we uh, structure our relationships, if we're if we're categorizing, and so I have a friend who sat here once, uh, and at night she dreamt that she was taking her entire email address contact list and categorizing it according to benefactors, friends, <laughs> neutral people, difficult people, uh, which I thought was really cute, you know. So it's not as cut and dried as that. It's not really that we're doing that. Um, we're just allowing the practice to unfold. And really, each category can have its own challenges. So it's another little wave of looking. You know, like I talked about the challenge sometimes with a benefactor, you know, in addition to what you described, where people feel, you know, they've got it all together. What do they need me for? Um, and, you know, difficulties with a neutral person. It's boring, we don't know the story of their life or, you know, even difficulties with a friend. Suddenly, all these other aspects emerge. And so we're just kind of uh, unfolding in the elaboration of, of that practice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the comment was about going through different extremes of emotion so that every sitting, every walking can be different. They each feel like an adventure. And an example of a, um, a relationship, a, a recipient that, that came up, which um, led her to just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And uh, on the other side, having this recent experience of just falling madly in love with herself and, and kind of the glory of that. And then uh, asking herself, is this like the honeymoon period? And remembering that honeymoons last 18 months. Is that right? All right. <laughs> honeymoons are said to last 18 months. Um, 
It can be like that, you know, and it's fine. Sometimes I also was saying with the groups that, um, you know, sometimes people have really, really distressing dreams, really difficult dreams when they're doing any intensive retreat and certainly loving kindness. It's almost like a detox, you know, part of the process is a purification. So it's not wrong, it's not bad that all this stuff comes up. Grudges and this and that and that. It's just like, you know, may you almost be happy or, you know, may the three of you be happy but not you. And, you know, like all kinds of stuff will come up. And it is, it's like a detox. So sometimes that happens in your dreams. And the irony in a place like Burma where um, the tradition is that you begin every sitting with the recitation of the 11 benefits that are said to come from loving-kindness practice, which start with, you sleep easily, you wake easily, you have pleasant dreams. <laughs> and sometimes you just have this wretched night, you know, and then you get up and you think, what about me, you know? But it's not wrong. You know, it's not that it always needs to feel delightful or something like that. There's a lot that happens and comes, so that's Okay. You were right in that sometimes it's too much, you know, and you need a sense of, like, cooling out, chilling out, getting some space, and absolutely you should honor that. You know, that might mean all kinds of things. It might mean going back to just being with your breath and just having that kind of simplicity. Uh, it might mean doing more walking. If you can bear it, it would probably mean getting outside, you know, and, and walking outside and just having that sense of, getting grounded so that, you know, uh, because it's not going to be so much a question of what's coming up, but how we are with what's coming up. And you don't want to be just like so tossed around by it, you know, that you lose any sense of being centered. And so that's the work, you know. Um, And sometimes it is like that, you know, and it's really intense. And sometimes it just feels like nothing is happening, like nothing at all. And And that's normal, too. Um, So we just kind of do it. You know, we engage uh, as fully as we can, remembering that the core value in some way is balance. Balance doesn't mean you're not going up and down. It means that you're relating to the ups and downs in in a more spacious way, which means like kindness and um, acceptance and and so on. It's really, it's not wrong what, what you're going through. Okay, so the question was, I'm laughing because I think it's so good to have fun with one's mind, you know. Uh, the question was about complicated relationships and the, the fact that, you know, as he, as he just experienced, you might be thinking of somebody uh, successful and then you think, well, maybe they're not all that successful. You think of somebody and you think, oh, well, they have a lot of difficulties. You think of a difficult person. You think, well, actually, they're kind of successful. Uh, And I think there's something wonderful about that in that we do see, you know, we can so easily kind of slot somebody in some particular uh, folder in our heads and forget the kind of intricacy of a human life, that even as someone's struggling, they may have sent. Uh, strengths, they may have resources, they may have love in their life, they may have faith, you know, that um, we don't necessarily have to fixate only on the difficulty. And even as someone seems to have a lot going for them, it's life, you know, they couldn't possibly have everything going for them. 
you know, and so uh, I think there's something good about that. But again, for the sake of the practice and just the unfolding of the practice, you don't want to go too far with that. So it's like successful enough, you know, and enough difficulty, you know, to to not be constantly trying to parse it out uh, so that you can actually just kind of make the offering. You know, that's coming back to um, kind of the structure of the practice. You know, and it, it may not be the perfect benefactor. It may not be uh, the perfect anything, but that's okay. Okay, I'm going to let you walk. Be happy.